0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Modern Adventurer podcast.
1: did make the adventure line and completely loved it and it sort of opened up a can of worms of my sort of competitiveness, stubbornness, my sort of adventure streak and it's gone horribly wrong since.
0: <laughs> I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have gone on incredible adventures in recent years. But before we start, if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends, leave a review and connect with me at John Horsfall on social media. I am building a community of adventurous people, so it would be great if you signed up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com, where I show you behind the scenes, I do giveaways and offering you opportunities to come on our adventures with me and get out into the wild. Now, on with the show. My next guest is a British adventurer having become the first European woman to complete the four deserts grand slam in 2010, which is 250 kilometers self supported across the Atacama, the Gobi, the Sahara and Antarctica. She is now attempting the seven summits on today's podcast. We talk about the preparation that goes into these big expeditions and about how her story started. I am delighted to introduce. Lucy Rivers Buckley to the show. The sort of list of what you've done is absolutely incredible over the last, what, 10, 12 12 years or so. And I suppose probably for people listening, the best place is to sort of start with you and how you sort of got into doing what you're doing with these adventures.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, It was a mistake, actually. (laughs) Um, I was meant to be a one-off. Um, in 2008, to do the, the Sahara, which is seven marathons in six days, it was meant to be a one off with my sister to raise money for my memory of my father from Macmillan and um, made it, survived it. I mean, everyone's meant, to, everyone everyone in the race had a sort of rucksack roof, so probably like four, four or five kg max, and we both had a kitchen sink on our back. We had everything, you know, we were ready to be there for a month if needs be. And um, so we had no idea what we were doing complete rookies but um she sadly didn't complete it because of her knee but i did make the finishing line and completely loved it and it sort of opened up a can of worms of my sort of competitiveness stubbornness my sort of venture streak and it's gone horribly wrong since
0: So after the Marathon de Sabla, was that sort of the kick, and was that sort of you sort of had the drug of adrenaline, and you were like, right, how could I push myself further?
1: Yeah, completely. And um, so I thought well, maybe maybe one more. You know, the classic, always dangerous, and maybe one more. So I um, signed up for the Atacama, which was similar format um, in spring of 2009, which went went a bit wrong. I tore my meniscus on day four. And um, which I don't recommend to anyone—it's incredibly painful. And however many painkillers you're inhaling, it doesn't seem to make any difference whatsoever. I got to a checkpoint, strapped up my knee—I thought I was absolutely fine—and water and painkillers, and I sort of did another 5k and realized that I sort of had a balloon of a sort of knee, and it wasn't—it wasn't, it wasn't going to make any better. So I had to wave the white flag. So I'm not very good at not completing something. So I thought, right, better go back to the Atacama in 2010. And while I was, you know, thinking about that, planning that. Now, someone told me that no woman had done all four deserts in a year so obviously another red rag to a bull, and that's how i came about doing all four in a year which i think my body didn't for i did not think i fully appreciate what it would do to my body sort of the training the sort of time off work just just the combination of everything um and it was an amazing experience wouldn't change it for the world but definitely wouldn't probably recommend doing that many ultras in a year <laughs>
0: And so, uh, your time in the Atacama, in terms of training for the sort of races, how did you go about it?
1: Yeah, a lot of Bikram yoga because you know being based in the based in the UK, it's not very easy to train for heat, <laughs> the heat of a desert. Um, so, it was, a, it was an outer chamber near in, in London, and combination of that and Bikram yoga, which is not your sort of average Monday spin class, um, but it you know it, it did help. And I think once Atacama was the first before that year. And weirdly, once you're a certain level of fitness, so that it was cases case of taking over. So I was never going to win these races. It was more about survival <laughs> than not sort of coming on the podium. But ironically, that year, and this is sort of March, March time in 2010, was when there was a big um, earthquake in Santiago. So we, to get to San Pedro, we had to go via Argentina. And I met up with another sort of team of British guys. And we had to do a road trip across the Andes from Salta to Pedro to get us the, to the start line. So, you know, it was meant to sort of meant to arrive these things, very calm prep and everything. And actually it was, it was the most extraordinary road trip, which was great fun, but not quite the sort of prep we were meant to pre, pre and ultra race. So you completed
0: all of them within the year?
1: Yes. So it was that... March, June, September, October, sorry, and November. So it was sort of nine months, basically, of 2010. We spent, you know, the nine months total of the, the four races. Um, but it was amazing, you know, you see different places and you you know, it's it's the sort of the whole experience of it and the sort of local airports have you know, China didn't particularly like us going there at the time. And then remember you know, that you know, suddenly Ruchi airport and they're like, Why are you here you've got to go home? We're like, No, no <laughs> producing all the paperwork, you know what it was like. Um, you know, the road trip to the Atacama and heading back to Sahara, that was quite surreal, sort of knowing I was about to see three sixty sand dunes for another seven days, which is not great for the mental thing, and then, then the Atacama one, which was sailing through the Drake Passage. So it was complete a year of extremes. But I probably should have stopped then.
0: And so you but you continued on.
1: I did continue on. I um I've always loved mountains, um, but never you know, been slightly obsessed by Everest, but never thought I'd be able to climb it, or be able to climb any sort of high altitude one. Because you know, some, some, some of us aren't meant to be up there. And I was doing a talk at the RGS for a chari- an army charity evening. And I hopped on stage, and I was the only a female speaker then. I hopped on stage with a broken leg, which is not the best look, you know, when you're trying to be up there, a the little black dress, and <laughs> and the guy speaking before me had just come back from Everest. And so obviously, you know, one story led to another, and then I got talking to him after that evening, and I thought, like, well, I you know, if If I wanted to climb Everest, how would I go about it? Because obviously I wasn't overly technical at that stage. And obviously, you know, you have all these armchair critics saying it's not technical in certain places, but I think you still need to know what you're doing. And and so he put me on the track of, and that's when the seven starts, seven summits started.
0: And so when you say he put you on track, how, how does, how does one start to climb Everest in terms of the planning, the logistics that go through it?
1: Yeah, exactly. Sorry, yeah, back on track like, it sort of makes it sound so easy. I um he was there was a, he recommended I spoke to this guy called Rob Castle, who and actually we met him um we sort of arranged to meet up he's based in Canada. He's a British high altitude climber doctor guide, and um, but he's based in Canada with his French wife. And we met up actually I remember it was in the in London twenty 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 two twenty twelve. You have to edit that bit out. London 2012 Olympics. And we met um, in the park there. And just, you know, cause he was doing he was doing an and cagular exhibition that winter. And, you know, wanted to meet me, what I was like, see whether my character would work. So he had a trip going you can't just throw people in. Because, you know, mountains aren't the kind of place to have sort of, you can't have egos up there. You can't have arrogance, luckily. And um I and got on, like a house and fire. It was like, out so talking to an old friend. It was brilliant. Um And we went, to, we decided that, you know, you know, he could help me with all the climbs and he was sort of, you know, he'd been on Everest. He was had an exhibition going in a couple of years' time. So there was a sort of stepping stone which we could work out. Um, so I went to Akincagia Ta- with him that winter.
0: And how how was that? I mean, in terms of preparing your body for mountain climbing, had you ever done it before? Or? I, I'd, I'd
1: done some some small things, but I'd never sort of done anything ridiculous. And I, you know, I'm, I'd, I'd been in sort of tent for days on end, nights on end, but, but never sort of, you know, it's slightly different when you're sort of too many layers, but now I was having to pat them down and not the, you know, the, the T-shirt and shorts. But I absolutely loved it. Didn't have a headache. You know, there's no altitude sickness. Not, none of the sort of signs you always have to look out for. We had, um, we were very lucky. We had, I think it helped that we had a good trip. There was no sort of, there weren't too many dramas. You know, we had okay-ish weather. You know, there was nothing sort of drastic. So I think that sort of helped with my sort of first big you know, um, four weeks in a tent. It sort of, you know, it helped. And I, and I absolutely loved it, except for the summit morning when everyone could see, you could say, everyone's always talking about, you could see the you know, Pacific, you can see so far. Honestly, I could have been the Brecon Beacons. My summit photo of that is just basically like one big cloud. And my family even said, are you sure you're there? Like I promise you I'm at the top. So apart from that photo, it was an amazing experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm not quite on the same level, but there's a... Peak in Sri Lanka where it's meant to be all sort of quite holy and, you know, Adam and Eve sort of made love there or some, some, and Muhammad put a, his foot ear print in the, a stone or something. Anyway, there's, it's all quite religious and everything. And apparently you climb up at night for four or five hours and it's quite sort of, as you say, difficult, Um, not on your scale, but, and uh, anyway, when we got to the top (laughs) cloud, Freezing cold, just like and then you had to walk all the way down, you're like, that was great. Oh
1: no, I know. That's what so then you have all these you hear all these stories and how amazing it is, and then suddenly you're like, Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) And in terms of these sort of expeditions like that one, what are the sort of amazing moments that you have that sort of keeps you motivated to go on to the next one?
1: I think it's it's, the food, you, it's the, what it's amazing what your body can do. Whether it's you know survival it can survive on so little. You know, you know we're hungry at work, or you're having a bad you know Monday or Tuesday. You've had a big weekend. Sort of you think you're starving at lunchtime, don't you? You sort of raid the fridge. Whereas actually, what your body can do on small reserves is incredible. And I think it's always I enjoy pushing myself to see how far. Obviously, I don't starve myself in the mountain. But it's quite amazing what you can do. And also waking up above the clouds. And knowing you've got there, using your own lens, or when you're in a plane looking out, and you're like, how have I got to this level? You know, using my feet, and like that. That I just love, and it's also your cut off from the from what the world, you know, the comms, the everyday sort of emails and the social media, and, which is all very well, but it's also quite good to step back and zone out, so to speak.
0: No, I agree. And so you're sort of moved on to there, and so your attempt in Everest that was in two thousand and fourteen.
1: Yes, so I went out with um, this great guy. We had good. Te- we had a really good team. We'd all had a tr- um, we'd all together in Chamonix about a couple of months before. Just to, you know, mm-hmm. you you need to know what your teammates are like. You know, if I go quiet, you wanted to get. You know, I need a chocolate bar very quickly, and mm-hmm. I don't go quiet very easy, so check. I'm okay. Whereas, you know, I know a guy who sort of starts talking a lot. that's not very him. You need to know each other's quirks. So if something does go horribly wrong, you mean know, you know that's whether like you know, good state or bad. Um, and we were there. In 2014. and Sadly, we were heading into the icefall that first morning of the rotation when the serac came off and killed 18 Sherpa, which was utterly horrific. And in case of sliding doors could have been. A couple of hours later, we might have been in might have been in the icefall as well. And we were, we had our um, harnesses on. We were heading into the mess tent for a quick bit of porridge before heading to the icefall in the early hours. And we had a you know radio message saying hold hold tight. And you just think you never envisage. How bad it is. You think, ah, oh, perfect. Extra cup of yeast to toast. I you mean, know, keep eating on the mountain. We'll be, we'll be, you know, heading off in a couple of hours. And then it's sort of developed into the disaster we know there's now. Um, and it was very surreal being at base camp while it was all unfolding. Um, because I said Rob is a doctor. So he was like strength the ice talk. he knew it. So he was helping rescue people. His wife was a cardiologist. So she was, when I say helipad, don't think of Basti. I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> a pile of stones. There, when everyone's been rescued or bodies retrieved. Mm-hmm. Um, we all, and you're also in a weird bubble when you're on, a, you know, when you're on an expedition or on a mountain, you are in a, like, sort of bubble. You've, you know, people at home who adore you and love you, but you, you not, you don't forget they're there, but you, you have to sort of take some while to remember. Actually, they might hear about this quite quickly. And everything, Everest, the news, good or bad, flies very quickly, doesn't it? And so we all had to make phone calls home on a sat phone saying, look, go back to sleep because obviously you fallen three quarter hours ahead over there. Just remember this thing call, go back to sleep. And thank goodness we did do that because obviously it's Easter Monday, Bank holiday, there was no other news in the UK and it just went like well for us. All our families wake up to message on their mobile saying, Are they okay? Are they okay okay? And luckily we managed to get a message saying we were okay. So we then we then flew home because obviously all expeditions were off. And some expeditions wanted to continue, but the local shuttle were being they sort of they were being threatened because it was turning, to, it turned political, and it's just not, it's not, it wasn't very good for anybody. It's, the whole mountain, because we came home. So I thought, right, there's another New Year, so let's go and try 2015. And I was on a final <laughs> training climb in Chamonix um, with a guide friend over there, and I got caught in ice avalanche, which I'll send you a photo. And I've got a small scar here. It's disgusting. I'll send it when you don't look at it when you've been eating. And um, and I was climbing up an ice ball. It was a uh, one of those really. Could happen, you know, so easy but avoidable, but also you can't do anything about it. He and I were climbing to the left-hand side of a big ice wall and there were two climbers top right, and it was no one's fault. It was just a freak accident. And he said, Hey, so I ducked down, helmet, sunglasses on, great green jacket. I was looking good, and um, and it was going quiet. And then I sort of looked up to do to think perfect, it's gone past, to move my top one well, my right ice axe, and just I looked up, the last freaky bit of ice came down whacked me. And I just thought it was nothing, you know, you get hit in the head, and you sort of, you momentary dazed. Luckily, crampons and ice, the other ice axe were in the walls, so I wasn't going anywhere. And so I looked down, my sunglasses folded off, they were full of blood. My bright green jacket is no longer green. I was like, hmm, I think I might have to go down. <laughs> so I've sailed down. And luckily, because I was surrounded by ice and snow, I could get on, you know, I could cold compress it really quickly, so it's helped the scar, but I, um, smashed my cheekbone, couldn't see out of my eye for three weeks, and that was when my 2015 Everest expedition was called off, which actually is a sign rules moment again, because then Nepal had the earthquake and my team was stuck at Camp one. So yeah, it was meant to be in a, in a very weird way.
0: You had done 2004, which was sort of a disaster then. sorry, 2014, that's the one. So in 2014, um, you had that sort of setback and then was it 2016 when you made the second attempt?
1: Uh, no, 2015 was when I had smashed my face and was meant to try and go. And then I had to cancel because of my my broken cheekbone and I, I couldn't see Adler for a while. Um and I was carrying a sort of pirate motive. You know, I was had kind a of, you know patch on my eye for a while, I was sending a photo. Um so then we decided that actually take a step back. Because actually it's it's so it's such a big expedition to plan emotionally, physically, mentally, everything. And not actually know what it was maybe near the mountains to tell me to have a have a break or two. Um so then I went to Denali in twenty seventeen in alaska um which was stunning the most incredible mountain if you've never been i highly recommend this most beautiful mountain range and you're sort of dropped and it's very old school climbing you're dropped in the middle of nowhere by this sort of playing at base camp which just sounds very grand but it's literally just a uh, maybe two or three tents. there's nothing else there and um and you've got your rucksack and sled and there's no resupplying whatever you need for the three four weeks of your ice is on your back or in your sled so it's very definitely out there and and we loved it, and we got to high camp. We'd had great rotations up and down, and, and we got to high camp at Denali, and we obviously then had a whiteout. Nothing ever goes according to fans, so we descended. But luckily, the rest of my team wanted to descend after that. They'd had, they'd had the experience of high camp, I thought that was that, that they were heading home. Um, but the guide coming up, I'd climbed before somewhere else. So I, um, I jumped onto his team, made sure I had enough supplies, and they went back up, and we had the most beautiful clear summit day, four days later, you know, everything aligned. which was amazing. And after that, having another good experience in a big mountain, it's like, right, we can get, You know, felt ready to go back to Everest, get attempt to Nepal again.
0: So was it third time lucky?
1: Definitely. And luckily, yes, <laughs> um, flew the day after Easter in 2018, um, Having, which is always, you know, a bit good bit about mountains. So you get great fun. of so eating, trying to put the extra layer on so you can lose the fat before muscle up, up at altitude. So it was a very, very greedy Easter. And then flew off just after that. Yeah. And I was over there for just under two months in 2018, which was very lucky. Third time lucky.
0: Good. And how was that? How was the climb?
1: Um, it was It was amazing. It's everything I'd read about, thought about. Some days were worse. Um, You know, your body definitely shouldn't be up there. You know, however fit, however strong you are, physically and mentally, your body really doesn't like being above 8,000 meters. And I take my hat, I was on oxygen, and I take my hat off to anybody who does it without oxygen. I think if you do it without oxygen, you are a full-time athlete. You have to, you know, it's such a different extreme of training. Um, But even with oxygen, I, I could definitely, it wasn't shutting down. I was very lucky. I didn't have any injuries. But you can definitely tell your body shouldn't be up there, and you know, um, and sort of when you're on oxygen, my my body's from, from when I first on the oxygen above. When we left Camp Four and the higher camp is eight thousand meters, heading up to our summit bid, hadn't had any problems the whole way up. No headaches, no sort of problem with breathing. I've managed to sort of inhale the also, sort of, you know, sweets or Pringles or I don't know some really nutritious worst nightmare, what we eat on the mountain, you know that kind of thing and or copperseed, was or something really extravagant like that and it sort of started dry retching just below the balcony and sort of that's not that's never been me on oxygen i didn't know what was happening and luckily i was with this amazing guy called basang whose brother-in-law was with my teammates about half an hour ahead of me you know we all they were, we all knew each other we'd all climb as i said before so that was good and my pulse was okay my eyesight was all good so all my stats were showing normal for that that altitude that height and um, so i then started worrying that it might be a sign my body shutting down in a different way and, and i had tried promising but <laughs> to everyone i was saying goodbye to but i would you know push myself extreme but i would definitely my aim was to come home so then you sort of and your mind starts you're you're shattered you're you know 10 o'clock 11 o'clock at night you're you know it's in a zone you shouldn't be in your mind starts playing tricks with you and we luckily had everyone on the radio we road to base camp and sort have eaten something all the basics and we had someone at camp two and they was you know, checked everything. And then luckily my teammate came on the radio about half an hour ahead of me and started which I won't repeat on here, started giving me abuse and winding me up and I bit back and you can hear everyone giggling on the radio like saying she's absolutely fine. So we knew it was just literally my body going through a, a bad patch and nothing worse. So that was that was quite a sort of scary moment, which you can't do anything to prepare for. And we got to the balcony and all I will say is I will thank goodness you climbed it in the dark because between the balcony and the South Summit is seemingly narrow. You've got drops by the side and you know photos don't do it justice. It's just incredible. And my one regret is I've got a photo of the sunrise, which you can slightly see the curve of the earth. And I wish I'd taken a video of it because it just would have been amazing. But you you are fixated on that little dot of orange to your right for quite a few hours, knowing it's going to bring sunshine and warmth doesn't seem to move in as fast as you'd like it to be, but it, it was everything I wanted it to be and more, but I was very lucky.
0: Did you have any issues with crowds?
1: No, we were very lucky. Um, I was there in 2018. The photos in the press in 2019 was horrific. Was that, you know that famous photo again. We, I think we were very lucky. combination of there were less people climbing that year for whatever reason. Also, we had a very long weather window. There was 10, 12 days of weather, so all the big teams had the chance to spread out. They weren't so sort of rushing, you know, without worrying about, you know, the, the last. And I think that what went wrong in 2019 was all the sort of, they had like five, six days, which every single team, which there's a lot over there, whether they're Western, Nepalese, as a matter you know, that's all trying to pile up there at the same time. I think that's what caused it. We had no crowds. We did change our summit attempt by night, we only because there was, was the year when Aunt Middleton was there, Ben Fogel was up there. You might have read about Aunt Middleton being caught in a storm. So the storm he was caught in was the Sunday night, Monday morning. So no one went the summit on the Monday night. So on the Tuesday night going to the summit, when we were meant to be going up there, we had sort of the two nights in one, which, which when Ben Fogel was up there, and you've seen photos and it was a beautiful morning, but there were about 130 odd people up there. We made the decision, which At the time, I felt like it was such a life-defining decision. Three of us made it because, you, you know, you think you've got the weather right. You think you've got the supplies, but actually, you know, would we regret it 24 hours later? We lay in our tent hearing everyone leave. My teammate actually left and came back 45 minutes later, which I'm so glad he did for the game and the following night. And the following night, we were incredibly lucky. Everything was on our side part of my body having a half an hour wobble. Um, and there were six of us when I reached the summit, there were six of us up there, including myself and Pasang, another person I knew, and then I was up there 45 minutes and you can't fathom how far you can see. That's what's so extraordinary out there. But, and then for the last 10 minutes, I was, it was just myself and Pasang on top of the world. You could see people going down both sides, coming up those sides, but for 10 minutes, it was just here and I up there, which is just unbelievable.
0: That sounds incredible.
1: It was. It was amazing. There were definitely some tears up there. Um, and also, I had my, my one girly moment of the whole two-months trip when my hair escaped my woolly hat and the frozen I touched and it crumbled in my hand. I was like, no! <laughs> but um, apart from that, it was an amazing 45 minutes up there.
0: You you must have felt so lucky seeing those pictures in 2019 and just being like, thank, thank God, you know, I didn't have to witness that.
1: Do you know what? I, I felt sick looking at it. Because I know, I know how hot it is up there. I know how cold it is. I know how tar- how tired you are. Your body's sort of, you're running on adrenaline at that stage, you know, between the South Summit and the Summit, Hillary Step. You, you hear all the horror stories. We've all read the books and seen the films of, you know, the disasters in the 90, you know, 96 and things like that. And then suddenly to see it in 2019 when I've been so lucky. The year before, and actually, I think one of your previous guests was Julie Stewart, and I messaged Julie about and He was like, "How lucky we both were—the years we were there, we didn't have the crowds." You know, I was incredibly lucky, but actually, I saw things up there I don't particularly want to see ever again. But that was on a good year, so I doesn't bear thinking about what you know what people experienced up there, and it, they must have been freezing. auction would have been running out. It just, it just, and you also can't get around people if someone is too slow. There's a crowd, you know. Even you decide to turn round, on that ridge it was not even a ridge, or just below the ridge. Was just you probably can't go either way. You'd be stuck, and that's yeah. It made me feel physically sick enough.
0: And so you've now done six of the summits. Was that Everest climb? That was the sixth one.
1: Yes, I kept at the sixth. There was people. Make, I thought thought about maybe keeping it the seventh as the last one, but I didn't want to make a decision up high that I probably shouldn't make in case if it was the last one. You know, you just, I wanted to hope I was making the right decision for the right reasons. Um, so the final one is going to be Mount Vincent in yep. Antarctica. Um, you know, we can, we can all but plan and hope, hope hope for next year, but it depends on COVID and the world travels and, and how it all pans out because it's closed down there at the moment. And obviously they're very lucky they've got no cases. So I think let's, let's try and keep it that way. Um, so that will be the final climb in the seven summits, hopefully fingers crossed.
0: So, I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable that from going on your first desert adventure in the Sahara, doing the Marathon de Sables to suddenly what, 10 years later?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was 10 years, 10 years climbing of ex- Everest of, ex- of extremes, but I, yeah. Ten years. Well, you know, did. It was ten years. But I think, yeah, it was. It was. It was never planned. It was never planned. As I said, um, I think I was very lucky. The opportunities came around, and I. And I'm very. You know, I can't wait to stand on top of Vincent's Weather and body <laughs> if everything goes according to plan.
0: And how, in terms of sort of funding, because I know when I spoke with Geordie, we sort of brought up funding for funding for let's say. Antarctica and climbing Mount Vincent. How, how do you go about it?
1: Um, yeah, it's a great climate for sponsorship, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, there was a couple of, um, sponsors who came on board for Denali, um, in Alaska in 2017, who, um, a couple came on for, for one-offs cause they had a tie into Alaska or America or the launching company. It just worked but there's a couple who've stayed came on Everest who are kind of staying for Vincent as well, which is great. Um, obviously then I, you know, that's not the whole thing. And so we start talking to people. And anyway, I was thinking about starting to approach people this summer and then obviously COVID hit Easter, so it's, it's not really the email you want to send like, hi, hope your health's good. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to write a blank check? Um, so we'll start again in the spring, you know, slowly, slowly. And, it, and I think the years of, having one big sponsorship you know, the exhibitions of the nineties and the early two thousands, I think they all have it, you know, one big company who did the sponsorship, which I think those days are long gone. It's, it's lots of small sponsors and, and whether it's the talks and the social media, there's, there's different angles you can do that. So I think that'll, that will be a, that'll keep me entertained next, uh, next spring <laughs> and summer. I think.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I sort of think, um, God, if you think about sort of how accessible these sort of big adventures have become. Over the last twenty years, you know, if someone had said twenty years ago, "I'm going to climb Everest," it was like, "Whoa!"
1: You know? I mean, you're the only one in the world probably that even heard of was trying to attempt it. Was now, you know, it's. I think it's great. Lots of people are doing everything and jumping off the sofa and actually, you know, pushing themselves. But I also, it from the sponsorships sort of. Your, your niche angle, it's, it's, you know, dilutes everyone. It's, you know, doesn't You know, and also there's the, l- the time. There's a lot of noise in. out there. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise. Um, and masses, but also I think, you know, the time we're in, it's extraordinary. And, and I think that, you know, that everything combined will be quite tricky. And I think people are still keen to be involved, but it's in a different angle and a, probably a sort of small, you know, you have five small ones instead of two big ones, I would have thought going forward. And so
0: in terms of do you feel what sort of drives, how do I put this, what sort of drives your, what's the sort of mindset that you have when you go into these adventures, because as I've sort of spoken on the podcast quite a bit, it's the sort of mentality to endure a lot where others might quit where what's in the sort of back of your mind, pushing you forward.
1: I think I probably have a slightly in a stubborn streak, which I've discovered. <laughs> I think. Um, I think initially, when I first started, was raising money. Um, raising money was was basically my one hundred percent one my goal, my main reason. Um, that's still there. I still, you know, not for my small things, but you know, for Everest have I did commitment again, and I'll do you know Vincent the final one McMillan. So that's a small driving force. But also, I it's if you're in a situation and you're lucky enough to get the sponsorship and be able to have a great team around, I think I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky to be able to to do that. Am I lucky that my body's able to endure what I'm pushing it through? If that makes sense. It just sort of, I, I think my stubbornness, my, I just, I just love the adventure. I love the not knowing what's next. You know, you wake up outside in a tent, whether you're in a desert or, you know, you might have a sandstorm you might have a snowstorm you might have a, you know just it's just it's the not knowing where so much in life is contained and organized
0: in terms of your day-to-day life how how does it sort of compare sort of <laughs> completely different
1: i you know, exactly damn suited big clumpy boots so sort of you know little black dress and heels but i think i better but i think it makes me I'm better at sort of everyday life because of the extremes I've seen and witnessed and done. Um, I'm probably less sort of, not tolerant. That's the wrong word. maybe I'll edit that out. But I think I'm, small things don't bother me as much as they used to. You know, if you're stuck in a traffic down it still drives you completely potty. But there are, you know, I think my day to day life, you know, if you're in a meeting or everyday life, something goes wrong, that, actually it's not, it's not something you don't panic. You know, it doesn't upset you. Whereas, on a mount, you know, because you see things on a mountain or on an adventure that are far worse. You know, on Everest, I was lucky. We had an amazing summit morning descending, and someone died at camp three an hour ahead of me, and that was horrific to see. And that was, you know, from my point of view, a quite good slap in the face for me to realise I still had three and a half miles to descend to the relative safety of base camp. But also, you know, someone split-second decision has gone horribly wrong, but it's something I shouldn't see and you don't want to see. And so, you know, if something goes wrong in everyday life, everything's relative.
0: Do you feel that these adventures are almost like a drug now, whereby you're pushing yourself a bit further each time?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's slightly, I think it is. It's slightly addictive. I mean, it's not sort of, I mean, every, every, all addictions are relative, aren't they? But I, think, I say this is, maybe it's not a safer addiction. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely not. But I, I think it is. I think it's sort of, you know, you, it's like, you know, you go, you, there's three countries on your list you want to visit. You've ticked off two. Well, there's another four countries, and they go back on your travel list, aren't they? And I think, yeah, I, you know, will I stop after my seventh mountain? Probably not. You know, I, think, I think it is addictive, however big or small the adventure is. You could know, sort of go, go mini adventure or you know, micro adventure, aren't they, called, in the Brecon Beacons or Scotland or Cornwall, but also you could do a trip to I don't know, Afghanistan or somewhere like just everything's relative, but I think it is, it is slightly addictive actually. In a good way. <laughs> in a very good way.
0: <laughs> um, don't you? Do you think it's addictive? Oh yeah, massively. I mean, this, this is sort of how I got into it was very much. I sort of ha- had the idea and I think what I'm finding out by speaking to people on the podcast is it sort of starts with a 10 a K and then a half marathon and then a ultra marathon. And then from there, you sort of, you just say, Oh, I did that now. How far? And you just keep sort of nibbling away, pushing yourself. And it's sort of, it also when you live life slightly on the edge, the sort of monotony of day to day life becomes quite well not boring, but
1: it does though, but you come back it takes quite a while you'll probably find that you you come back from a big trip it takes quite it takes me quite a while to get back into the normal way of life and sort of as you say monotony of life isn't it it's sort of
0: just- yeah. One of my favourite clips on a movie was, have you seen the film Hurt Locker?
1: No, I have to watch
0: them. Uh It's quite an old film, but it was about this guy who diffuses bombs. And he, he's sort of out in Afghanistan or Iraq diffusing bombs. And then he goes, well, after his six month tour, he comes back. And then there's just a clip of him in a supermarket looking at Twenty-six different brands of cereal.
1: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> it's just completely extreme. Whereas you're lucky to find a sort of you know a non you know a tube of Pringles which are in date, you know type thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's, but when you're on these sort of trips, you know, as I've spoken before on the podcast, it's very much those small luck, small things which, in now, you know, me living in London, is very much sounds disgusting, but at the time you know, the idea of sleeping in a public loo, let's say, which has running water and electricity was a complete luxury to me, but now I, I wouldn't dream of doing it,
1: but <laughs> like I'm sure saying, once I, now. once
0: I go back into adventure sort of mode, I'll you, be like, you, oh you my God, a, this is amazing.
1: Completely. If I don't have running hot water, I'm like, no panic. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're at home having your day to day normal life, whereas actually, you know, on a mountain, you're, you know. You're lucky, you know, you've got a ball of the water. It's just, it's just, it, it just puts everything, I think it puts everything into perspective. I think it's quite a good leveler. And I think, you know, I think, I think more people should be able to do it, whether a small one or a, a big adventure it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an nevertheless, but I think it's quite a good way of putting everything, as you are saying, you know, everyday life into perspective.
0: Yeah, I've certainly, um, what's the word? Become less interested in sort of small pointless things. Where I think, you know, 10 years ago, when you are sort of, a young adult or a late teen, those things are really, really important. But you sort of get to. I know they were the be
1: all and end all, and now I like,
0: oh. <laughs> couldn't care less. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: No! <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I like, well I'm yeah. going to write, was it Hurt Locker? I'll write that down.
0: I'll watch. Uh, well, it's, it's just that clip. It's a very good film. I think it won an Oscar. But yeah, it was just that clip I remember so well of him just going from one extreme to like another and you're just like whoa
1: yeah it's, i remember actually from the summits of um, everest back to london was six days and i remember thinking and you only i need to stop sort of actually properly slept when i got back to london because i think your body's sort of and it takes a couple of days your body still thinks it's sort of inhaling everything you're eating and drinking expects is dreading what you're going to ask it to do next <laughs> and then obviously you've gone from two months of choosing when i had dialed up to use a sat phone or you know communicate with someone whether it's a blog or a a social media post to suddenly having you know 2020 or 2018 at the time technology was pinging in every direction it was quite a sort of so fries your head sometimes you know you can't sort of it's out of your (laughs) control but it is it's just yeah it's very weird
0: and so um there's a part of the show which we ask the same five questions to each guest each week and so the first one is on your trips and expeditions, whether climbing Mount Everest or running across a desert. What's the one bizarre thing that you crave or miss from home?
1: I was thinking about this, and my initial reaction, um, my initial, initial answer probably sounds awful. is diet coke. I have. I don't smoke. I don't drink coffee, um, and I think, I think you know, just. because on an expedition, it's you know it's electrolytes and water is known as normally it's boiled snow so and obviously the odd bit of sort of you know electrolytes juice drink um so i think i probably crave a really cold not not daily one every so often you know you get back after rotation or sitting back at a camp or in your tent a really cold cold diet coke nutritious worst nightmare but yeah that's what it is
0: what is your favorite adventure book?
1: Um, I think uh, that's. Oh, I was thinking about this. There are too many. I, I love it, and I have a bookshelf full of bartering books, of and I need inspiration. There's quite a lot of people to draw on. But I think one of the first sort of pioneers of just extreme and amazing ideas was Robin Knox Johnson. Where he sailed. I think it was what's it called? Sort of a world of my own. Um, and it was what was the late '60s, and he was the first person to solo um, sail around the world, which I think in that era it was even more, more mind-boggling than it is now. I think it's absolutely phenomenal and way ahead of his time. I could think of nothing worse, but I think it was amazing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, did you have an inspirational figure growing up?
1: I think, um, obviously, probably everyone always says this, but um, I think Ranulph Fiennes was, again, like Robin Knox Johnson, just so incredibly sort of forward thinking on those adventures. And I've luckily have all my, you know, my fingers. <laughs> I haven't had to cut any of my own off. But I think what he's achieved over his lifetime is is just mind-boggling. Um, and I've heard him a couple of times speak, and actually, luckily, I was very lucky to overlap with him in Alaska. And um, and the Americans in Alaska were quite sort of, um, they were very sort of, not nondescript, but they were very sort of blase about, they were like, oh, there's not a fellow Brit here. I was like, oh, how exciting, who, there's not many of us, um, it's a small world, isn't it? And he's like, you know, Ranoff, Ran, Rudolf. I was like Rudolf. I was like Ranoff, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's him. I was like, okay, where exactly is he on this mountain? Because he was, he'd flown in like a couple of days ahead of me on Alaska, so I was very excited about it. He was doing a very below the radar trip, and he had four British doctors, so I was equally, you know, selfishly quite excited about some British doctors being a day ahead of me on a mountain as well. Um, sadly, he had to fly off um, two days later with a bad back. Um, so i actually overlapped with him and talking to him for a day of chats and we had lunch which was unbelievable and he even better to talk to in real life than when you hear him in a talk or you know read his books so i was very yeah. lucky
0: <laughs> wow you are lucky did you ha- do you have a favorite quote or motivational quote
1: Ooh. There are some which, which drive me absolutely potty. You see come up there and you're like, no, no pain, no gain. I think my favorite one, I don't know who wrote it, um, adventure may harm you, but not will kill you, which I think goes back to what we were saying earlier, that, you know, have a big or small the adventurers, just get out of your sort of normal day-to-day, wherever you're based in the world, get out of your day-to-day regime because it's, it's so much better for you. Even if it's a half an hour a day, a night, it doesn't have to be, two months in a tent. Just, I think I, I need to find out who wrote actually. Um But no, that is my favorite one.
0: Oh, amazing. It's a good one. I, I have heard it. People listening are always keen to go on these adventures. What's the one thing that you would recommend them to get started?
1: Talk to as many people as you can, um, you know, talk, research. Everyone said so, we're so lucky the adventures are coming, you know, years ago. It was just sort of. It was sort of you know, the, top, the odd person here and there. And I mean, so many people are doing it, whether it's a micro venture or a big adventure. So there's always someone you can contact, whether it's social media, email, website, you know, friend of a friend, book. You know, there's, there's so much knowledge out there. And I think the more you can talk about it, the more you can brainstorm, you can have an idea, and, and they'll give you advice, which advice from someone else is far, far better than reading a book or looking it up online, I think. And, um, and everyone who's been there would love, love talking about it, you know. I've spoken to people about climbing Killy and things like that, or Mont Blanc, or something. Or you know, I probably told people not to run across deserts, but <laughs> in the climbing side of things, like don't do it you like your toenails. But you know, it just I think talk to as many people as you can. It doesn't matter how big or small your idea is. 100% go for it. Back yourself you know, mentally and physically. And then I think just, you'd regret it if you didn't do it.
0: Yeah. And what are you doing now and how can people follow your journey?
1: Um, what I'm doing now is trying to get to, back to full fitness after too many lockdowns. <laughs> I, uh, the, tire, the tire needs to come back out and start dragging it across the field. Um, I am going to start I'm preparing and planning my final climb, which would be um, Vincent in Antarctica. And the best way is by my website, which is lucyrb.com, um, or Twitter, which is Lucy R.
0: Amazing. And so Mount Vincent is the next one and what you're hoping to do that in 2021.
1: Yeah, I would love to, the season down there is sort of end of November to beginning of January. So I think that's family Christmas this year and skip next year. <laughs> <laughs> um, that will be planned depending on, you know, fitness team or all, all the usuals. Um, but that, that would be the, that would be the ideal. Yes.
0: Yeah. Hopefully uh, we can follow your journey. Uh, when that happens
1: fingers crossed and thank you very much
0: well thank you so much for coming on today it's been an absolute pleasure listening to your stories
1: thank you very much I'm sorry i talk too much <laughs>
0: <laughs> no it was great thank you for listening you can watch the podcast on youtube now and don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com i hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure but till then have a great day and happy travels